This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Affirm Films' Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous, the Kendrick Brothers, explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters now. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for being with us again. I read yet another horrible story about gang violence this morning. A 16-year-old from Fairfax, Virginia, was found dead in a remote area after being stabbed, they think, about 100 times by fellow members of the notorious gang MS-13. And five men have now been arrested in connection with that murder. It really breaks your heart to hear these kinds of stories about gang life. But it's also amazing when you hear a story about a gang member like the one you're going to hear today. We're going to talk about it with Casey Diaz, a native of El Salvador and a former gang leader who grew up on the mean streets of Los Angeles and who came to know the Lord in prison. He is now telling his story in the book, The Shot Caller, a Latino gangbanger's miraculous escape from a life of violence to a new life in Christ. Casey, it's great to welcome you here. How are you? Very good. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Janet. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. And I think your story is fascinating. So let's start a little bit at the beginning. You say you were, what, two years old when you came to the United States. So you don't remember being in El Salvador. I don't remember being there in El Salvador. Yeah, I came here when I was two, and so absolutely no, um, uh, nothing, never been there as well. Right, so you've just been in the United States most of your life. What was your family like? I know you had a bit of a tough relationship with your father. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, the, initially, you know, it, it, you know I, I guess I was uh, a little blinded by uh, what would take place uh, in the in the future, but um, you know, normal, normal growing up, uh, uh, going outside, playing baseball and football and stuff like that. Um, except that in the home, there was a lot of violence with, um, that had to do with my father right. at that time. Right. And I know he was abusive. You even tried to kill him, didn't you? When you were a little boy? Yes. Um, uh, I, I, I did, um, on, on several occasions growing up as well. Yeah. It, it was just a, a bad relationship. Uh, you know, uh, the drinking didn't help. Um, and then, um, you know, as you, you grow older, you're able to, to defend, um, your mom. And, and so, yeah, yeah, it was, it was terrible, uh, growing up in, in this apartment. Yeah. I'm so sorry. How did things develop when you grew up in a kind of a violent home and a sort of abusive home, you ended up entering the gang life. How did that take place? What was the story of how you went from being a little boy, seeing all of this in your home to joining a gang and getting involved in a gang? Well, you know, um, in the 80s, uh, the gang culture had just really uh, came uh, uh, alive in Los Angeles, and it was really, uh, really getting started on a, on a heavy note. Um, eight years old, I believe, um, uh, is when I uh, witnessed a triple homicide uh, right in the back of the alley of where we lived, mm-hmm. and um, where I saw, you know, somebody gunned down three people uh, oh. right before my eyes. So seeing that and then... Uh, then getting introduced to the gang by a, a local gang member there, uh, it was just, you know, you, you don't have a, the support in your in your family, and then you have the streets that are actually embracing you. It becomes very easy to, to choose one from the other. Yeah. And for me, uh, you know, uh, I got introduced to it at 11 years old, uh, to this gang uh, culture, and uh, I took um, 
I just I just ran with it, and um, unfortunately, um, it cost me it cost me a lot of uh, unnecessary uh, uh, time that that was spent uh, losing my my entire youthfulness uh, yeah. uh, in juvenile halls, prison camps, and eventually in state prison. That's right. What was it that appealed to you the most about gangs? Was it kind of the camaraderie that you felt you lacked at home? Would you say that was the greatest pull for you and why you really sort of went in that direction? Or was it that you liked the toughness of it? What was appealing to it about you, for you, I should say? Uh, I think it was the validation, um, the sense of family that it kind of portrayed. And you know you're 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 a young boy, and uh, if you're not hearing your your father telling you, um, you know, um, hey, you're gonna make it, you're gonna be fruitful, you're gonna be someone in this life, and and you go without that, you know, you're you're gonna look for that validation somewhere else, yeah. or it's gonna come and present it present itself to you, and and that's what happened with me. Um, I like the family, uh, uh, what what it looked like, um, the the family unit within the gang. Uh, you know, you, you had parties, you had the drinking, you had, uh, you had all kinds of stuff that, that really elements that, that kind of look like family, um, and the, the loyalty within the gang culture. So that really, uh, attracted me very young. And, uh, you know, I, I would find out later on, um, that that wasn't the case at all. Right. When did you start to become involved in criminal acts? When, you know, you began, obviously, as an 11-year-old, you didn't start out doing anything uh, heinous to the point that you would be imprisoned later on in your life. But how did it start? What was the progression of, now I've joined the gang, now I'm going to start doing some criminal things? How did it start and how did it progress? Well, in this gang, this particular gang, actually, uh, uh, it went on fifth year really quick, um, uh, my first stabbing was at 11 years old. Wow. The, the very moment that I um, got initiated in, um, I had to uh, uh, go and partake of a of a stabbing. And um, so that was my, my first taste of it. But, you know, prior to that, there was, um, uh, you know, going into 7-Elevens and stealing candies. And, you know, it, it's just the wrong crowd to be around and, and again, um, you know, uh, uh, my mom uh, worked two jobs, and I wouldn't see her because she would leave four in the morning and wouldn't return until, you know, ten, eleven at night. And so the only time I got you know, any kind of um, a time with her was on Sundays. And by that time, you know, you, you know, you are who you hang out with, and yeah. uh, the the gang started consuming my my thought, my actions, and everything else with it. Right? Did she know that you were involved in a gang? Um, I, 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 she did. And I think it's like very, it's very common in, in, in the Hispanic culture. Um, you know, that, they, that they, they stay in denial of, of seeing their, their children, uh, become these, these, um, these gang members that, uh, they become violent and they become very dangerous. Yeah. And I, I think my mom was in, in deep denial. And then the other thing too is, you know, my father, um, it, not helping, the situation was him, and, and, and he was drug dealing uh, as well. So all, all this mixture was, was, was it just really, um, it was an easy way to, to choose the gang culture yeah. over anything else. Yeah, because she was busy. She was probably stressed out. So she never came to you and said, you need to get out of this gang. Did she ever talk to you about it when you were going through it? Or, or was it just allowed to progress without much interaction? 
it was allowed to progress without any uh, any uh, interaction. I mean, you know, you should tr- you know she was busy trying to put bread on our table and right. and, and and stay with the with the bills, the rent, and, um, and 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 she would talk to me from time to time. Uh, but you know, I I'd go in uh, into juvenile halls. I spend a year there or six months, and uh, and then I'd get out, and I'd probably last about maybe you know two three days, and then I would be locked up again. So wow. uh, I really didn't get to after eleven years old. I, I didn't see my mom, but a handful of times because I was uh, very uh, in, involved and in, and in these uh, juvenile hall. Uh, Right. Uh, you know, lockups. Right. How did that affect your education? Because clearly, if you're going in and out of juvenile hall, that's going to be very disruptive for your life and being able to make your way in the world. Did I mean, what did you think about school? Did you care about school or anything like that during that time period? Um, initially, uh, no. You know, I, I was kicked out of um, so many LAUSD uh, uh, schools beginning in, uh, in uh, junior high. Uh, what we call now middle school. And so I, I went to, I, I want to say maybe six or eight um, uh, junior high schools and um, a handful of uh, of high schools. And, and again, I would only last until I get arrested. So, it, you know, uh, it, it was just jumping all over the place uh, in downtown. And, and in fact, uh, they had to ship me in one of the occasions. They shipped me out of uh, Los Angeles and bust me to Canoga Park High School in the San Fernando Valley. Oh, wow. And in there, I mean, I only lasted, uh, I think, um, 40 minutes in, in the classroom, and and then I was arrested uh, in, in, on the school property. Well, then uh, we're going to get into more on this. The Shot Caller is the name of the book, and God certainly had a plan for you, Casey. We're going to get into that part of the story when we come back on Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. From Affirm Films comes the Kendrick Brothers' Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous take moviegoers on a cinematic journey that invites you to think differently about your earthly father and how you relate to God through five true stories. I'm stunned. He's real. He's really out there. And this is really him. This is really him. Show Me the Father. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Now playing. More information is available at showmethefathermovie.com. This is a story of a young mom in crisis who felt alone and desperate when finding out she was pregnant. After meeting with the counselors at Preborn and seeing her baby on ultrasound and hearing the heartbeat, she knew that life was the best choice. My mind changed completely from the abortion the first time that I visited. When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life. I know God wouldn't have wanted me to just throw out my blessings like that. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you please join Preborn in providing love and support for young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. Just call 855-402-BABY. 
855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. 855-402-BABY. Or there's a pre-born banner to click at JanetMefford.com. From Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers comes Courageous Legacy. Celebrating 10 years of impact on families and fathers. Remastered in 4K and including a new ending and bonus scenes. So where are you, men of courage? I believe every father should step up and answer the call and say, I will, I will. Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters September 24th. More information is available at CourageousTheMovie.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. We're glad to have you here. Also glad to have with us Casey Diaz. His book is called The Shot Caller, A Latino Gangbanger's Miraculous Escape from a Life of Violence to a New Life in Christ. Casey, you were sharing about your background as a kid in Los Angeles, the tough family situation. You were in joining the gang, going around, getting kicked out of school, getting put in juvenile hall and the arrests and all the rest. What was it that finally had you go to prison, New Folsom State Prison. I know you ended up there for second-degree murder and some, what was it, 52 counts of robbery, something like that? Yes. Um, yeah, that's what, um, uh, you know, I was 16 years old and um, you know, when this happened, and uh, it just uh, it zapped uh, my, whole, um, my whole young life um, in, in, in these institutions. And, you know, you, you progressively just get worse and worse um, in these, uh, institutions, it's, it's, um, it's very, very minimal, uh, rehab, rehabilitation in there. Uh, it's more, you know, and, and it is what it is. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, you committed a crime out here, you deserve to be in there. And, and that's, uh, that's just period, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, there shouldn't be any tolerance for, for, um, uh, activity or lenience towards, uh, stuff like this. So, um, you know, again, I, I, I had absolutely no uh, religious background at that time. I had no um, uh, care for lying for or anything else. Um, so in there, I, I just continued my criminal lifestyle uh, and um, became someone that uh, that I regret uh, be- becoming yeah. uh, later on in, in my life. Well, was there much of a gang culture inside prison? Because you hear about that a lot, that there are various gangs inside the prisons and people kind of end up in this gang or that gang. To what extent did that affect you when you were in prison? Um, well, you know, in California, in the CDC, uh, um, in the California Department of Corrections, um, it, there is a, 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 a convict law that goes throughout the entire uh, uh, prison system in California. So you you will have to join something, a... a a organized, um, you know, crime uh, in there. So there's nothing that you can do about it. You you will have to partake of, of uh, these decisions that are made by uh, the hierarchy of, of these gangs. So whether you know if you're if you're black, you're going to join the blacks. If you're gonna, if you're Hispanic, you're going to join this part of the Hispanic group. And then there's divisions in between of, uh, all of that. And so. Going in there, uh, uh, you know, you, you you hear all these stories, and and this is time to to really man up, and and you got to survive in there, and whatever that means, that's what you got to do. Yeah, you and do. So for me, you know, violence was so uh, big with me, and, and so easy for me that that, um, in, in a sick way, it helped me to become one of the one of the you know, uh, 
shot while I was in there. Right. So how was it? I know you ended up in solitary confinement and you had, you know, your moments in prison that were just horrific. How was it that the Lord ended up getting a hold of you? Can you tell us that story? Sure. Um, it was by a, a, a lady by the name of Frances, and um, this little lady uh, uh, would come with um, her little Bible study uh, group from her church. It was a small church. It wasn't some mega church. It was just a small church making a difference. And, you know, she came in there initially and into solitary, and I remember... Um, uh, the first time that she came in there and addressed me, you know, um, she asked for permission from the guard to approach my cell, and and uh, it was that initial moment that she said, um, you know, uh, I'm going to pray for you. And, and I, 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 again, I didn't want anything to do with anything that was religious. I, it was I wasn't aware of uh, Jesus, the Bible, or anything like that, or even Christianity. It just wasn't part of my life. Yeah. And when she invited me to this Bible study uh, in solitary confinement, I thought. This lady's crazy. She's she's not <laughs> inviting me to Bible study. Does she know who who I am and where she's at? So I I didn't you know I wasn't disrespectful to her. I just I thought I, I thought these things in my mind. And uh, again I uh, I just uh, didn't want anything to do with her. I, I let her know that. Uh, but her zeal, her courage, her boldness, and um, and her faith. I mean, she just said, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray for you, and Jesus is gonna use you. And um, uh, a year and some change later, she continued to, to uh, stop by every... This this uh, church would only come here um, to the solitary confinement place once a month. So uh, the, 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 the visit is very, very short. And um, she always made it a point to stop by myself and let me know that she was praying for me and that Jesus would, would use me. And um, lo and behold, uh, I had an experience in there, in which I talk about in full detail right. in the book... Um, that just changes the course of my life at that moment. Yeah. So wasn't it that you you saw your life kind of play out in your cell? This this was interesting how this happened, how you really, the Lord really kind of got you and <laughs> grabbed you, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, 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 I even when I share my uh, testimony with, with in places and, and stuff, I always uh, let everybody know, you know, God, when he wants when he wants to get a hold of you, he will get a hold of you. Yes, and um, you know, and, and he'll come my eye level to you, and and that's what happened with me. Um, he really um, became so real in that moment in my cell that there was no denying uh, what had just taken place in my heart and in that cell. So, uh, uh, you know, I never prayed before. Um, nobody had ever taught me how to pray, but I just knew that what I just saw and what just took place in my cell was absolutely 100% real, and um, uh, that led to um, my life being required of me for stepping down from this leadership in, in this organization. That's amazing. So what was it about the gospel that grabbed you? The fact that you were loved, the fact that Christ would go to the cross for you, the fact that you could be forgiven? What was the thing that really pulled at you? All of those things, I imagine, to some extent. But what do you remember about that experience of finally understanding what the Lord had done for you? Well, um, at the age of eight or nine, I remember um, I, I, my first name is Darwin, and that was that's my birth name. Um, uh, I, I didn't like the name. I uh, had no uh, idea about what it meant or anything like that. I was just a kid. But I didn't like my name, and I remember getting a bunch of uh, the kids from the neighborhood in, uh, in the middle of a, of a baseball game, and uh, or right before the, the, the game started, and I, and I told everybody, I said, from now on, you're going to call me Casey. 
And hmm. everybody kind of looked at each other like, what? You know, there's 50 <laughs> kids playing baseball. What's this about, right? And so I, uh, I did that. I don't know where I got that name from. But ever since uh, that day, my mom, uh, everybody, my family, uh, everybody called me Casey. So I'm in the cell, and, and it's that moment um, that I see him on the cross, and, um, and I can hear uh, Jesus telling me, Darwin, I did this for you, and I heard his breath being taken out of his body. Like, he's, he's lost his, his life. Goodness. And I could hear the, the actual sound very loud in, in my cell, and that's what, that's what made it so real and unique to me, that here's, this is real love. This is, this is someone that died for me. Yep. And um, immediately um, I knew in my spirit, in my heart, that, you know, um, it wasn't that I had did wrong in my life. It's that I had sinned before the Holy God. Yeah. Um, and, and that made the, the difference in my life. And I remember hit, hitting my, uh, the floor on my knees, and I repented. And, and I remember uh, telling God, um, you know, if, if this is you, you know, I'm sorry for and I And I got very raw and real with him. And um, some events happened uh, right afterwards. Yeah. What was Francis's reaction? Your Bible study friend there in the prison when you told her? Um, when she found out, uh, I think she was just in shock. <laughs> you know, um, I, and I think that so many of us, even now, you know, uh, we underestimate the power of prayer and, and intercession that that we that we have available uh, in, in us because of Jesus. You know, and and I think that that's it, it's so um, it's underestimated. And, um, and it's so needful and so powerful that we can go to a loving Father, to a loving God, and pray for anybody yes. to come to Christ. And man, when that's the desire of your heart, um, you'll change people. And, 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 and I'm that product of intercessory prayer through this little, uh, little lady the name of Francis Paul. Oh, that's so neat. And the fact that she just was from this little church and she just was going in and sharing the love of God and sharing the word of God with prisoners and probably had no idea what the Lord was going to do on that particular day. Casey, what would you say about your life since you came to know the Lord and what the Lord has taught you and what he has really done to impact your understanding of your former life? Um, oh man, there, there, there's so many things that I've learned so far. You know, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I've been a Christian for a long time now, um, and uh, one of the things is that God can do miracles; that He can really save the lost. I mean, He could. He, he has. That's what He came to do, and um, no one is 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 um, uh, you know His blood uh, covers everything, yeah. and I mean everything. And um, you know, sometimes we think that. You know, uh, the, uh, of these, uh, a crime or or a habit, and we go, oh, that that person is, is is. There's no way that that person will ever come to Christ. And I think that we're so wrong in that because, um, you know, here I am, you know, twenty, uh, almost on my third decade, and and God did this for uh, for for me, and 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 has changed my life. You know, after, after um, me becoming born again, and my life being required of me for stepping down. As a shot caller there, you know, over the uh, over 200 um, inmates would become Christians after that. Amazing. And um, many of them were shot callers of uh, one of them in particular, uh, one of the founders of MS-13. So, you know, here's what the gospel is so real 
and I've learned that, you know, um, that the Bible is real, it's relevant today, it'll always be relevant, and that's really all we need. If we need Christ, we need His Word, and that's what makes the difference in people's lives. Oh, Casey, I couldn't have said it any better than that, and people have got to read your book. It's called The Shot Caller. Casey Diaz with us. Casey, so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for being with us. This portion of Janet Meffer today is brought to you by Courageous Legacy, remastered in 4K and including a new ending. Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13 in theaters September 24th. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer today is brought to you by Courageous Legacy, the new movie from Sherwood Pictures, Affirm Films, Provident Films, and the Kendrick Brothers. Remastered in 4K and including a new ending, Courageous Legacy, rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters, September 24th. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Oh, the remembrance of my great sins, of my great temptations, and of my great fears of perishing forever. They bring afresh into my mind the remembrance of my great help, my great support from heaven, and the great grace that God extended to such a wretch as I. Well, we don't talk much like that anymore, do we? But John Bunyan did, and so did his fellow Puritans. These were Christians who were absolutely devoted to Jesus Christ and to his work in their lives. And we have a lot that we can gain from their wisdom in our own day. We're going to talk about about it today with Lewis Allen, who is pastor of Hope Church Huddersfield and director of Gospel Yorkshire, a church planting initiative in England's largest county. He and Tim Chester have written the book we're going to discuss. It is called The Glory of Grace, an introduction to the Puritans in their own words. And wonderful to have you with us, Pastor Allen. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Janet, so very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. What is it about the Puritans that you think is so important for Christians today to know? They, they get sort of a bad rap at times, but in fact, they have a reputation that I think they don't really deserve in modern parlance. That is absolutely true, Janet, that the Puritans were, at their best, they were deep thinkers. They were big lovers. And they, and if I can add to it, they were careful livers. Yeah. So they... they they were men and women much like us, ordinary people, their own trials, heartbreaks, tragedies, who were just convinced that the gospel was the best thing ever mm-hmm. and that they needed to think it through deeply, articulate it clearly, live it passionately. That's right. And I think- so that's why I think we need, we need to rediscover them, find out what they were saying and what points they have to practical discipleship. Amen. Can you give people a little overview on the history of the Puritan movement? I know there are lots of moving parts to it, but how was it that the Puritans <laughs> developed? How was it that they came to be the Puritans as we know them today? What, yeah, what, what thanks, played thanks, into thanks. that? Yeah, go ahead. Let me try a, a concise answer if I can. I mean, Puritanism, certainly in, in England, was really um, a, a purifying movement. It was a movement to keep on purifying the Church of England. It started um, really shortly after the Reformation. There were men we would identify now as Puritans in the 1560s and 70s, and their burden was was to see the the truth of the gospel rediscovered at the Reformation work through in the church, the state, family life, hmm. and the world of commerce as well. And that was a movement which which had different expressions, but was was going on really through, let's say, for the next 
the next century. Right. So it went on for quite a while. And people, of course, will think of the Puritans who ended up at Massachusetts Bay in 1630 and the origins of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, how was it that the Puritans, for example, would have been different from the separatists? Yeah, well, hmm. it kind of depends almost which decade you're looking at in that period and and who's using the language differently. Um, Some of the Puritans believe that separatism was was schismatic, hmm. was grievous to the Holy Spirit. They, they, the earlier English Puritans were very realistic about the problems in the Church of England, the fact that, as some said, it was, quote, halfly reformed, hmm. that, it, that, that the Reformation had stalled within it, but they still believed that they were serving God uh, and were best placed to preach the gospel being within the Church of England. Hmm. Other Puritans saw that very differently. Some came out and were very hostile to the Church of England. Some were more pragmatic. Some friendships and families split over that that um, that divide. Others could cope with it. Thomas Goodwin would be a good example of a man who, who worked within uh, the Church of England, but who felt conscience bound later to leave it. Yes. Right. Now, now, one of the themes, as you've mentioned about the Puritans, was they, they were about discovering grace and suffering. That's one of the things that characterized many yeah. of the Puritans. Yeah. How was it that they suffered? Because I think this is a, a historical fact that is lost on some Christians today, the degree to which a lot of these Puritans really did suffer. Yeah. And actually, Janet, as a, as a sidebar to that, I would say the Puritans who are especially worth reading are those who knew personal tragedies um, and and difficulties, but I think actually that's what we that's what we see in, in the preachers and the, and the modern writers we value the most. They're men and women marked by setback and disaster and illness and temptation. Um, so if we look at Puritan sufferings, for many of them, the sufferings just caused by by the hardships of life in the uh, in the late 16th uh, and into the 17th century. So um, Baxter, Flavel, John Owen, uh, these men all lost their wives, mm. uh, and most of them lost a number of children as well. Right. Uh, but then we're looking at men and some women who, who, who underwent great suffering and hardship because of, of the turbulence of the times they lived in. We think in England of the Great Ejection in 1662 when over 2,000 gospel-believing ministers were forcibly ejected from their jobs, from their homes. They were denied wages. They were literally thrown out on the street. Yes. Um, and many of them went, you know, brokenhearted, but feeling this was, this was gospel obedience. This, this was cross-bearing. Uh, and as that century wore on, the, the penalties against gospel preaching, gathering people to meet for Bible reading, prayer preaching, was illegal. So John Flavel, for example, had all the heartaches of, of losing, uh, I think it was two wives, um, to natural causes. But he, he was forced to leave his church in the southwest of England. Um, he came under the, the hammer of the penal laws, the so-called Five Mile Act, which said that um, a man who left his, uh, his living, pastoring his church because of the new law in 1662, wasn't allowed to come within five miles of his parish oh, wow. because they knew that he would he would gather many women to the gospel. So, so Flavel was one of the many men uh, who felt conscience bound to break that rule. He would slip into the town at night. 
he would travel in disguise. He would the word would be given, and people would would gather a little bit outside the town, um, and they they would meet often in the early hours of the morning, pitch dark. They would stage their own watchmen to see if if the king's men were coming to him rest and and fine and imprison hmm. um, Flavel and, and co-worshippers. So the sufferings of ministry and the sufferings of the hardship of life, right. and and those sufferings just give such a such a depth and a realism to much of the, the best of Puritan writings. Oh, yeah, you're so right about that. And you've got, I know, some excerpts there from William Bridge on suffering. Now, why choose right. William Bridge on that particular subject among all the others who clearly were also writing about the same sorts of trials? Yeah, I, we... We had to learn. We had we had to choose somebody. I say we, and that's myself and Tim. Um, and and Tim was um, not Tim. William Bridge was just another who suffered in in the Great Ejection. Um, he was passing a town in Great Yarmouth, which is on the extreme uh, eastern edge of England, that had many links with the continent. Um, it was an important town it was a, what we would think of as a strategic ministry there were many links with the best of of the equivalent puritan movement um in the low countries it was a great privation to him um that wasn't that wasn't the end of his suffering in a sense it was a beginning his was a life of hardship and so tim and i could have gone to many but the book he writes, Lifting Up the Downcast, has just been blessed by God through the centuries because there's a there's a tenderness to it. But also, I think, when you read the Puritans on suffering, they don't let the reader wallow. No. They don't let the reader throw himself or herself down in a heap. They know when to be appropriately firm, and they always take the reader back to the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. The command to believe the gospel, the command to see whatever our sufferings in the light of God's providential overruling and ever-present grace through Christ. Yes, that's so true. And I love that book, by the way. I have a whole big mm. collection of those Puritan paperbacks, and yeah. <laughs> that's one yeah. of the ones that I really love is a lifting up for the downcast. And you're right. This, yeah. this is generally true with all of the Puritans. They force you back to God's Word again and again yeah. and again and again for whatever subject they happen to be addressing. And there are many more in this book, The Glory of Grace. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Pastor Lewis Allen, an introduction to the Puritans in their own words. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. 
find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife. I wouldn't have my four adopted children and the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like pre Born. Help moms choose life with preborn. Your gift of $28 provides an abortion-minded mother a potentially life-saving ultrasound. $140 could save five babies. You can give now at 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. This is Janet Mefford today. And now here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford today, and I have to say from my own point of view that once you read the Puritans, you will be ruined in some respects for many other Christian books because they're just so good. They're so deep. They're so Bible-centered. They're so Christ-honoring. And we are talking with Pastor Lewis Allen about the book, The Glory of Grace, an introduction to the Puritans in their own words. And we are looking at some of these great Puritans that you feature in this book, one of whom is William Bridges, we were discussing on the issue of suffering. Another one you feature, though, is Richard Sibbs on a assurance. And I think this is a really important topic because, as you say, the Puritans wrestled with how someone could know that he was one of God's elect. And that's been a perennial question for a lot of us. How did Sibs address that? And what was the, the general take there from the Puritans on having the assurance that you truly are saved? Mm, I mean, that's that's a big and a massive topic, Janet, about the uh, the nature of assurance in Puritan theology and many, many big times have been written on it. Um, I wonder if the issue was, was such a big one in, uh, in much of the Puritan era because the Puritans had a decade, slowly joined decade, and there was a rich heritage of, of Puritan preaching. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe amongst some of its leaders, a, a slight confusion. How and I've been preaching the gospel all this time. My people seem to be so weak in it. They seem not to get it, um, which is every preacher's experience. <laughs> and also, I guess, maybe uh, the Reformation as it began to take shape in England, um, its leaders had such high hopes. Jesus was riding out through the land in the, in the declaration of his gospel. Surely people would all come. Um, uh, and and bow the knee and be saved. And the history of that period of English history is, is one of great turmoil and and disappointment uh, in many respects. And so it was a partial priority for preachers to be reassuring their flock, no, this is Christian experience. It's hard. It's difficult. Satan is real. Um, persecution is inevitable. I think some Puritan preaching on assurance was, was very arid, very propositional, very dry. 
I think the real helpful contribution of Sid's, uh, and the section which Tim and I chose comes from one of his very famous works, The Bruised Reed. He's taking out Matthew 20, verse, uh, verse 20, A bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And it's such a good, good book. Yeah. I think it was one of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' favourite Puritan mm-hmm. reads, and it's, it's one of my wife's personal favourites. Now, Sid's is so good and helpful on assurance because he grounds assurance in Christ. Hmm. He doesn't lead uh, the reader into speculation about his or her soul's condition, but he leads them to Christ. He shows them uh, Christ's compassion on the bruised and the broken, his tenderness and care with those whose faith is is just like a smoldering wick. So calling people back to Christ, getting them to look to him, is just such a strength of of much Puritan preaching, but particularly it's a strength as Sibs deals with the topic of of assurance. God sends his people through hard times. He's saying bruisings will come. It's a very moving section in that work which we reproduce where Sibs makes uh, makes a claim that we need to be bruised before conversion. Hmm. You know, our sin will bite us and wound us and harm us. God's providence will be strange and difficult. But having said that, God bruises us and through that leads us to Christ. Sibs then says we need bruising after conversion. God will have us weak and vulnerable and needy. But yes. He knows what He's doing and He will stay close to us. We need to look to Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. Yeah. And and learn from his meekness. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. That's such a great book. Another great book, too, is is one you excerpt from Jeremiah Burroughs, who's also awesome. And he, that book was The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that you guys point out in the book that he had refused to read this book of sports that had been put out, yeah. permitting dancing right. and sports on the Lord's Day. This sounds so foreign to a lot of us today where we have, you know, full-blown shopping malls all open on Sundays oh, now. Yeah. You know, things have changed. But talk, talk a little bit about that. Jeremiah Burroughs and his commitment to the Word and his refusal to announce that from the pulpit. <laughs> yes, and, and and he lined up with men in his day. He knew that when King James I, who was not a gospel man, <laughs> a very, very intelligent man, very politically astute man, but not a gospel man, when he issued the Book of Sports, he was really knowing he was heading on a collision course with the Puritans who he thought were too powerful and too difficult and far too hostile to his, his, his views, his beliefs. So this was issued um, in connivance with, with the Archbishop of Canterbury. They wanted, kind of to put a line in the sand, they wanted to deny what they saw was the preciseness, the pickiness of Puritan Sabbath keeping. Um, and it was, it was, mandated by law to be read in the pulpit across the nation. Burroughs was one of many who said, no, <laughs> not doing it. <laughs> um, and that, um, that, that caught up with him. Um, he had to leave his position in the church in Norfolk. Not, not straight away, but later on. Um, persecution got so bad. State, state-sponsored persecution. And, of course, the word Puritan... Um, w- was a slur. It was a slander. It meant really uptight. Hmm. 
overzealous. Mm. Richard Baxter, as a boy, said, I remember being a boy, and people called my dad a Puritan. Uh, and he knew it was, it was used slanderously, but these men and women thought, well, if we get that title, <laughs> we hope it's because they see something distinct about us, which actually is to do with the grace of the Lord Jesus. Mm. And then the equivalent label, I guess, would be with the Methodists. That, similarly, the following century was, was a term of, of abuse. Mm. They were so methodical. They were so particular and demanding about their religion that they were known as Methodists. None of them particularly liked the term, but again, they were happy to use it if it distinguished them as, as serious gospel people. Mm. But back to the issue, Janet. Yeah, Sabbath keeping was, was, a, uh, was a real touchstone of Puritan spirituality. The day was the Lord's. Church leaders who are Puritans wanted to gather their people to rejoice in the Lord. And they weren't afraid to say, because the day is set apart for those activities, then other activities must be, must be avoided. Mm-hmm. Hence the... Uh, hence the clash on the book of sports. Right, right. Oh, it's so interesting. And yet it was Jeremiah Burroughs who, as you say, looked for all the everyday things that we have in life as gifts from God. Here's the man who ended up losing his pulpit, but he's talking about Christian contentment, which is, you know, obviously a personal lesson that he had learned. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And and, and it's, it's, you know this, Janet, and many of our listeners do, it's such... It's such a caricature of the Puritans that that they were that you know they they were against the world. They knew that God gave every good gift richly for their enjoyment, mm. and they sought to do that. Mm. So the best Puritan writings celebrate the gift of work, as Baxter does in the excerpt which we we choose: the gift of family, the gift of love, the gift of children, um, the gift of food and drink. But they knew that the heart is wicked and greedy and seeks contentment in these things. Um, Byrus is saying, God is offering a deeper contentment. Hmm. Enjoy what he's given you, but seek it in the Savior. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's great when you go through all of these Puritans who are, you know, many people will know John Owen and, of course, John Bunyan and John Flavel, as you mentioned before, Richard Baxter, a lot Hmm. of these. Do you have one particular favorite out of this group you feature in the book? Yeah, I do, Janet. My my favourite is John Flavel. Yeah. Some say Flavel, some say Flavel. Nobody really knows. I just happen to say John Flavel. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've I've done quite a lot of work on John Flavel. Why Why I like John Flavel is I think his warmth and humanity shine through, and his skill at handling the scriptures with with deep and precise reformed. Uh, theological grasp, but with such a, a worshipful tone, um, is really startling. I went to see a friend in our church yesterday, and to my delight and amazement, he had a, he had a volume of Flavel next to his Bible. He said, "I just love this man. He just shows me Christ like nobody else does," mm. and and that's been my experience. Wow! I think John Flavel is especially readable as a Puritan. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed his writings. Well, a wonderful choice and so many great choices. The name of the book is The Glory of Grace, an introduction to the Puritans in their own words. You can pick it up. And so good to be talking with Pastor Lewis Allen. Thank you so much, Pastor Allen. It was just a delight to have you here with us. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Thank you. God bless you. Thanks for joining us here on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.
This hour of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Affirm Films' Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous, the Kendrick brothers, explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG, parental guidance suggested in theaters now.